I was thinking about paying a price, things, things being worth the, the uh, price that we pay. Something else I, I, I um, actually meant to start off with in terms of the kids, things that need doing. God saw a need. God saw a need of humanity, didn't he? God saw a need. God saw something that was worth. It, it, it needed God to act. Only God could change us, so God makes a plan. God made a plan from before he ever founded the world. It says from the beginning of the world that Christ is, before the foundation of the world, Christ is the lamb slain. That God got together and made a plan. Father, Son, and Spirit made a plan. This is how God would save humanity. This is how the Trinity would accomplish our eternal redemption. They made a plan. They sent Jesus. The Spirit would draw us to himself, to faith in Christ. There was a price to be paid. The sending of the Son, the giving of his life for you, for me, to have relationship with God. The essence of the gospel involved a need, a plan, and a price. So I'm not surprised when I see that emerge out of where we arrive at today in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Anything worth doing, anything that you see that needs doing, there's going to be a plan then to carry that out. There's going to be a, a, a price to pay. This room that we're sitting in is like that. Not surprising then the pictures hanging on the wall describe that. If there is a need for an education building, then the next step is there's the forming of a plan in order to accomplish that. And to carry out that plan, there's going to be a price to be paid. That's not an unusual model that only works in this situation or that. Much of what we will encounter in life, we're going to see a need, we're going to make a plan, and if it's worth doing, we're going to pay a price. Paul does that. I just heard a oomph over here in the corner from a young lady that saw a need in Indonesia, made a plan, and paid a price. The circumstances for Tasha changed, and she wasn't able to stay there as she had hoped, and yet still sees a need. Can I share this? And, and so, in seeing that need, jump right into the middle of the message here. We're, we're just on the fly now, but she says it's okay. So, so, seeing a need still, but the plans change, she can't be there. And so, through WhatsApp, she's still tutoring one of those students in Papua New Guinea and committing that time and effort through that online connection to maintain and continue a relationship and how that might allow her to share her hope in Christ with this student all the way around the world. See a need, make a plan, pay a price week after week to carry it out. That which we sang about, we go to all the world. Reminds me, there's others in this room that have shared my family's experience of being called to a place that we did not know or expect. Bob was happily meandering along in, almost halfway through an Air Force career, and God called us into mission. And we packed up our family, young kids, one of them under two at the time, and, and bundled them off to Africa. One of them has since stayed there. 
We went to a place called Swaziland, and we didn't even know yet where it was. Well, we did by the time we got the airplane tickets, okay? You kind of know where you're going by then. But when the mission first told us Swaziland, we're like, okay, great, where's that? But there was a need. There were things that we could do to contribute to meet that need, and yet, being away from family, taking children away from grandparents, which now I'm beginning to appreciate all the more as we're on the other side of that decision, that there's also a price to be paid. So in the gospel ministry, it's not surprising that Paul comes up, Paul, in a sense, models, see a need, make a plan, pay a price. Because I think there's something that was created in him along those lines that comes out of what it was that the triune Godhead did for us even before he made us. And so I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul's now going to be describing to them the circumstances that led to actually the outcome of chapter 1. The outcome of chapter 1, where Paul describes what this church, just things were great at this church. He, he, he describes it in the sense that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word of God in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. In the whole region, you became an example to others. They've heard about your faith even in the midst of trouble and trial and they are encouraged because of you. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. They themselves are telling the gospel around the region and their faith is being heard of by others and others are being encouraged because of it. It's a wonderful outcome that has happened. But do you know what? It might not have been that way. It might not have happened that way. It could have looked very different. It could have been, in fact, that nobody actually ever really heard much about the church in Thessalonica because the pressure was intense. And in the midst of intense pressure, the people had withdrawn. And they'd close themselves up in a safe place. They would meet together, but they kind of went underground. And you wouldn't really fault them because the pressure was intense. The opposition was against them. The enemy not only pressed them with fear, but also tempted them with distractions so that they were not proclaiming the good news of salvation in God's Son, Jesus, to the people all around Macedonia. And others all, all over farther were not hearing about their faith. There wasn't much heard or said about the church in Thessalonica. That's how it could have been. But it wasn't. No, the end written across it is this. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And you are telling others and everybody around is hearing what God did there and is encouraged because of it. How did that outcome happen? Paul describes it in chapter 3. Remember I said in this series in 1 Thessalonians, we are, we are working our way through this book because here we get a first-hand look, an early report back of what it took to plant and grow the gospel in the lives of others. This is an inside look at one of Paul's church plants when he writes back to them describing what it looked like and what it took. And we want to learn from that because we want to see things like what happened there happen here.
We want it to be that the word of God is sounded forth from here all over this area. That even in the midst of trouble or stress or pressure or obstacles, that look what God is doing even through this community of believers. We want that to be told. We want it to be said that we turn to God from idols, that we serve the living and true God, and that we wait confidently, expectantly, our eyes on his son who's coming from heaven for us. We'd like that same to be writ over us, wouldn't we? And of the ministry here, what will it take? Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Those three, those three steps, I've already alluded to them. We're going to see them here. We're going to see that there was a price to be paid. There was a plan to be worked because there was a, a need that Paul and the others saw. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one would be moved by these afflictions, these troubles, these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Jesus even said it. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as has come to pass, just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear somehow that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now I want to turn the passage upside down this morning because I want to start with the need and then from there look at the plan. This is what Paul saw. This is what concerned him. So this is what they did about it and this is what it cost. The point being, they saw a need, they made a plan, they paid a price. Okay? That's what I want us to see. So we'll start at the end. We'll start in verse 5 just because that's where Paul pulls the cover back and that's where he unveils that need that pushed this whole thing. That was the why. Let's, let's start there. There's a specific need in the spiritual progress of others. That's what Paul sees. He, Paul was concerned. Paul, he says, I fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The work that was established there in Thessalonica would not be what God has intended it to be. It would be for nothing, basically. That specific need of is opposition and pressure. It would cause them to withdraw. It could cause the church to go under, underground. Paul himself has experienced Satan's hindering of his activity. He can't go back to Thessalonica because of it. Paul, Paul knows as well, and the church is aware of the story of Peter, how, how Peter had been tempted. In fact, Jesus warned him ahead of time, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. Peter makes his bold statement about he's never going to abandon the Lord. He would never forsake me, even if all these others do. And, and Jesus turns and he says to him, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. How did Satan sift him? How did Satan try him? He intimidates him by fear so that he denies the Lord. And then, can you imagine the guilt as he withdraws in guilt and shame? He sees, his eyes lock with Jesus for a moment and he, and, and, and he breaks down in tears. 
and the, the, the guilt and the shame that is upon him. You know, in times like that, there are times when I withdraw when I should advance. There are times when I'm distracted when I should press forward. And afterwards, don't you feel some of that guilt, some of that shame? Something like Peter. And that's when I need to know that like Jesus said to Peter, I need to know that my Savior prays also for me, that he ever lives to make intercession for me and for you. In times like that, when I've been overcome by my own failure, I need to know that Jesus is praying something like this, Father, would you uphold Bob? Would you strengthen him? Remind Bob again that all of his sin is covered by my blood and that you love him as his Father dearly. I need to be reminded that my Savior is praying for me that way as he prays for you that way. Because Satan desires to oppose. He sends his minions to hinder, to trouble us, to distract us, so that their labor might be in vain. What does that mean? That's the trickiest part of this passage. It's a pretty straightforward passage. There's not a lot here to explain, so I had to find something to explain. What could I teach? And What does it mean that their labor would be in vain? Does that mean that maybe they wouldn't be saved after all? If they believed in Christ as the one who died for them, God's son loved them, came for them, died for them, paid the price. They are secure in him. He keeps them. He has given them eternal life. No, eternal life doesn't end. But what if the church goes underground? What if the church does withdraw? What if the church builds safe walls and pulls up the drawbridge and keeps themselves safe among themselves and tells nobody else? what it is that God has done for all of us in Jesus. You see, that's the purpose of the church. Paul describes it this way when he describes his own apostleship. He says, last of all, Jesus appears to him. He's the one that's, that's late born. He's the one that is the least of the apostles. And yet he says, but God's grace to me was not in vain. Now he's going to explain what that means. God's grace in me was not for nothing, but I labored more abundantly than they all. He said, God's grace in me to faith in Jesus then multiplied from me to others. I labored more abundantly than they all. He carries on that theme in, in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5. He, he tells them, God has given to us this ministry of reconciliation. This is what the church is about, that God has given us a ministry. It's of reconciling people back to God. God has put into our hands and from our mouths the word, the message, the gospel of reconciliation, how that God was in Jesus bringing humanity back to himself. He says, so we, you and I, the church, we are ambassadors for Christ. As if God himself were beseeching through us, we beg you, we implore you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. That's what the church is about. And then you know what he tells them next? We know that part. We are ambassadors. That's cool. What a standing. Oh, my goodness. You know what he tells them next? Chapter 6 and verse 1, don't receive the grace of God in vain for nothing as if you rolled it up tightly and kept it to yourself. And like that story of the talents, you buried it safely in the ground so you could recover it one day and you hadn't lost anything. And you hadn't gained anything. And nobody else ever even knew it was there. That would be a tragedy. That would be for nothing because that's not the point. 
You see, disciples of Jesus are to make disciples as surely as big bunnies are to make little bunnies. That's the way it's supposed to work. And sometimes we see in the midst of creation it doesn't work as it's supposed to work so that we know that it's not right. We are supposed to reproduce our faith in the lives of others. God intends to do that and he intends to do it through us. And if it doesn't happen, it's because labor has been in vain. And those wonderful things that Paul wrote about in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians never might have happened. Paul sees a need. Paul sees a need. And he can't let that happen to these he loves in Thessalonia, so he's going to do something about it. He makes a plan. There's a neat thing about the plan. He says, we, we sent Timothy. Okay, we would involve Paul and Silas and Timothy. Now, Paul is Timothy's father in the faith. There's a father-son thing goes on there that Paul describes other places. Silas is along. Silas is a helper. Silas is an assistant. He's an integral part of this thing, but he's not heard of so much. In fact, he disappears off the scene. We only can figure out from other passages that when, when they together, they agree together that Timothy would go back to Thessalonica, Silas seems to go to Philippi as well. And then they meet up with Paul again in Corinth, as is described in Acts chapter 18. So that seems to be what happened, but Silas is almost a silent partner in the enterprise. There's something, if I had a little fun, and I'm not going to make a doctrinal point out of this, but there's something about an echo of the Trinity playing out there. We decided, even as God says, let us, we, make man in our image. And that God decides the Trinity comes together with this plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world. And so God, making us in his image, builds something of that in us, that we see a need. And we make a plan. Now, some of you are haphazard planners. Some of you are very diligent and detailed planters. And God bless you. God loves you also. But to, to, not, to fail to plan is to plan to fail, right? The old adage says. And so you see a need and you make a plan. And here's the plan. Here's the plan. We sent... There's a value in planning and plurality. Certainly, we don't always see everything and, and coming up with an individual plan. I don't know how many plans are brought to the elders and they say, huh, well, or they say something like, well, that's one idea. It doesn't necessarily go any farther. It doesn't, that's maybe not the right time yet. Paul experienced that. When, in that big riot in Ephesus and Paul says, I gotta, I, I gotta get in there. I gotta rush in there. Others around him said, no, 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 Paul, no, you don't. Others who understood the situation better than Paul says, no, this is not the time nor the place. And the beauty there is Paul yields to the counsel of others. In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. And so there's a participation together, a planning and plurality. Think out loud with others. I do that sometimes and it scares people because I'm the pastor and you think, well, that's God's, or at least I think that's God's will just because I'm the pastor. No, just let me think out loud. I'll let you think out loud. Let's think out loud together. In terms of how will we engage with people around us. A planning in plurality. Wonderful example. Timothy. We decided to send Timothy. We thought it best to send Timothy. That's a good plan. You know, Paul and Silas were the for, at the forefront before. They were the known ones. They were the spokesmen. And, and they can't go back to Thessalonica. But Timothy can. 
Timothy was the background support. Timothy was maybe the logistics guy. Maybe Timothy went to the market while they were preaching. I don't know what Timothy did, but he doesn't stick out like they do. Timothy had a Greek father. Timothy grew up in a Greek home. Timothy doesn't speak Greek in Thessalonica with a Jerusalem accent like these two Jewish guys do. You know, it's like we send David Bristow out somewhere. Everybody knows he ain't from around here, are you? (laughs) Same thing. Timothy's the guy to send. Timothy's a little low level. He's not going to attract the same kind of attention because attention has been attracted already. So Timothy's a good plan. And Timothy is sent for the specific purpose. There's a what to this plan. To establish them so that they would not be moved. He's going to give them truth for faith. He's going to reteach and remind them of truth they already know. Things that Paul had already told them, as it shows in verse 4. Don't think that you need, in order for you to disciple somebody else, that you need all the answers. You don't need all the answers. You may not know much more than they do, but we need to remind one another of the truth. I was so impressed by hearing several years ago from a man who said, you know, the grace of God in you is stronger than the grace of God in me. And in the context he was talking about, there are times when I know God's grace to me, but I need to hear it from somebody else. Initially, in the earliest practice of the church, that's what confession and the statement of the forgiveness of your sins was. It wasn't about some priest forgiving you instead of God forgiving you and needing somebody else to get God's forgiveness. It was hearing from somebody else the reality that you are forgiven in Christ. And sometimes we can't tell ourselves that clearly enough. We need to hear it from one another. So Timothy's going to go and remind them of things they already know, but they need to be reminded of them in the midst of the pressure, and he's going to encourage them. He's going to exhort them or challenge them as to how they apply that true reality into this present pressure that they're facing. To exhort and encourage, this is the coach who's, who's, who's pushing and who's encouraging, who's yelling from the sidelines to go further, press on, run the race, stay the course. You've got this because God has you. Strengthening is teaching and reminding. Encouragement might be the challenge to apply that truth that we know in a next step, in a new way. He's going to, to remind them, establish them, and encourage them in the gospel of Christ. He's going to remind them of his coming. He's going to remind them that Jesus is king. The short-term issues are answered in the long-term purposes of God. That Jesus himself said concerning his kingdom, that is not yet, but blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness that isn't yet experienced. Blessed are those who mourn and grieve, for they will be comforted. They will be filled. They will inherit the earth. His kingdom is coming. His will will be done. And that must have encouraged them, strengthened them. Because make a plan requires also needing to answer, what are they afraid of? What are they fearing? 
In the midst of somebody acting out in a way or, or distracted by or giving themselves to something that they really shouldn't devote themselves to, what compels them to do that? What are they either hungering for or what are they fearing? What are they afraid of, afraid of that compels them to act in that way? What are we believing? Those are good questions to ask somebody. In the midst of something they're struggling with, a pattern they want to change, a good question to ask is, in the middle, in the middle of that, what are you afraid of? Or what are you believing? What are you believing about yourself right then and there? What are you believing about God right then and there? Making a plan is intentional. This is, a, this is a detailed plan. There's a who, it's Timothy. There's a what, it's to establish and, and to encourage. There's a how we're going to do that by teaching and by reminding. Why? So that they are not moved. That they will apply that truth into this present moment where there is much against them. The currents are contrary. The pressure is high. There's a lot of attention brought to bear upon them. And they need strengthening. This is not a haphazard, well, let's just kind of see what happens. Let's go with the flow, and along the way, you know, something will occur. No, Paul has made an intentional plan here with the others. I should add here, make a plan is not overly spiritualized here. It seemed good to us. It's kind of the way it's worded oftentimes. That we were, well, we thought it good. We were well pleased to send Timothy to you. It's not over spiritualized. There's a marriage of God's clear word to a present context and opportunity. God's clear word for us, for instance, to, to we, we go to all the world with the gospel. Jesus said that. Go to people around us. Bring others into God's family. Build them up as followers of Jesus. That's what God has given us to do. That's, that's Jesus' mandate to the church. Okay? But what does that look like in a present situation in context? Now, there's a little, we don't have to over-spiritualize that what has God specifically said for me to do this morning? How do I live that clear mandate out in the marriage with circumstances of today? Let me give you an example. Acts chapter 12, the end of Acts chapter 12, the Holy Spirit clearly sets apart Paul and Barnabas to be sent by the church. Okay, he doesn't say where, and yet in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas depart Antioch and they go to Cyprus. Why do they go to Cyprus? Did you know Barnabas is from Cyprus? They've got an inn in Cyprus. They, they have some initial contacts. Barnabas knows the lay of the land, so they go to Cyprus. And they work their way through Cyprus. And at the other end of the island, a place called Paphos, where our missionaries John and, John and Carol Regsdale are today, there in Paphos they meet the governor, Sergius Paulus. And Sergius Paulus comes to faith in Jesus. And from there, they depart Cyprus and they head north. They head into modern-day Turkey, then the, the region of Galatia. And uh, they head to a place called Antioch Pisidia. Why did they go to Antioch Pisidia first? Why was that their next stop? Is it because they were sent from a church in Antioch, named Ant in a city named Antioch, so they looked for another Antioch? If you're leaving here, did you look for a place called Brush Prairie in Papua? Papua? No. That, that's the, there's, there's another reason. Well, there was somebody actually originally from Brush Prairie, this area, who was now in Papua and who was starting a school and English uh, 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 as a second language was a big part of that school which 
Tasha had just got her master's degree, and I'm picking on you a lot today, just you're right there. You see how the marriage of circumstances comes together. Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, Pisidia, because there are archaeological inscriptions. I can only suggest here that Sergius Paulus's family was from Antioch, Pisidia. So their contact along the way gave them their next generation. There is a marriage of God's clear mandate to go to with who God gave them inroads to and connections among. And that's how it came together. So we don't have to over-spiritualize this. We don't have to make it harder than it is. Sometimes you take the next clear step and follow opportunities and openings from there. Sometimes it's by closed doors. Like Paul's, Paul's second journey, he wanted to go to Ephesus. He so wanted to go to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit closed the door. They couldn't go that direction. They were, they, were, they were not permitted. Opportunity didn't allow. And so they keep going out till they reach the end of the world. And then they head across them. Ephesus was important. Ephesus was strategic. But Ephesus was a dark spiritual stronghold. There were powers, a hold of Ephesus in a way that the city was perhaps not yet ready, had not, the ground had not yet been prepared, and maybe Paul and Timothy and Silas were not yet ready. And they needed to make a loop through Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and then go to Ephesus. And then everything was wonderful. A wonderful, extensive ministry there. So sometimes God opens a door, points in a new direction, opportunities and openings, sometimes just by closed doors, and yet the Spirit is leading. What might your plan look like? There's a basic need. How do I trust God and follow Jesus in this life or circumstance? That's a basic need that you see for somebody around you. How would they trust God and follow Jesus in this stage of life or circumstance? And maybe this is somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Maybe your, your first step is friendship with them, inviting them to a barbecue. Maybe this is somebody who does know the Lord, and yet you, you, to, you notice that they seem to be kind of wandering, not sure what they're supposed to be doing with their faith. They maybe even told you that. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And so you come alongside them. There's a friendship. Maybe, maybe you join into one of those. You, you form together with, with, with that one and another one. Uh, th- that triad that I talked about. Where we're going to we're gonna share together. Commit to each other for six months. We're going to get together each week. And we're going to focus on this is a virtue. This is fruit. I'm seeking the Lord help in growing in my life. This is a temptation that, that I'm seeking victory over. This is something that I struggle with, that I want you guys to lock arms with me and pray with me and hold me accountable on this issue that I'm, I'm susceptible to. This, we're going to share together. This is what God has told me in his word this week. This is what he showed me about himself. This is something, this convicted me. And you're going to push me to take a step into that if it convicted me. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to uphold. We're going to strengthen one another. We're going to do that for six months. And then maybe if we, if, if we so choose, we're going to do it for another six months, and we're not going to do it longer than that. We're going to cut each other off after a year at most. Why? Because then the three of us are going to each grab two guys or two gals, and we're going to do it again. And the three became nine, and you stepped into First Thessalonians chapter 1. The faith is beginning to multiply and spread. And others are hearing about it through you and I.
Maybe your need means you need to plan your go-to. Where does my life intersect with somebody else's? How could I help them? What shared interests do I have? What opportunities do I have for them to help me with something that our lives might, might um, begin to intersect? Start slow. You don't have to have it all mapped out. You cannot plan their salvation, but you can plan the next step and go from there. You can take the step to Cyprus and see where Cyprus leads you to. So you, take, you plan that next step. You begin to do that's what's before you in going to others around you. Because you want to bring them into God's family. Maybe your plan is to take someone who is growing in their faith and you want to take them from growing to serving. You want, you want them to come along with you now in giving their life away for, for the sake of others. And so that might look like, first, come with me. Hey, can you help me as I serve in this area? You've, you've got this. You know, how about I take a step back? You know, you take the lead here. You, I'll help you. A little bit longer, and you find, well, I'm just here. I'm encouraging, but you've got this. And away it goes. And then they grab somebody else and do the same thing. What is our plan for how we're going to bring somebody from where they are to that next step and how they are walking with the Lord and serving him? But when you do, Investing that kind of time, sometimes investing resources in the lives of others, it's going to cost you something, and that's step three, which actually now gets us to the top of the passage. We see a need. We see a need, the spiritual needs of people around us, the spiritual progress of others. We see a need, and so we make a plan. What is it the Lord would have me to do in, the, in these others' lives for their good and for God's glory? And if I'm going to do that, there's going to be a price to pay. There always is. There's a, there, we're going to pay a price for their good and for God to be glorified. That's what the gospel looks like. The gospel looks like love that paid a price for our good, for our spiritual prospering. And it's no surprise then that we would follow him in following that example for the sake of others. Pay the price for their good. Therefore, because of this, we could bear no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens. We were willing to be left in Athens alone. Paul sends Timothy. Paul sends Silas. Paul is there alone. Paul faces the crowd at Mob Hill where they've got him standing there, and he's, he's before a, a, a group that has the authority to execute people, to push them off the cliff for heresy. And there he stands, and he proclaims the gospel. And he's there without any support. There's no Silas there. There's no Timothy there. We don't know all the limitations that Paul has because of his thorn in the flesh. Maybe it has something to do with his eyesight. We don't know what it is that caused him ultimately to withdraw from Athens and move on to Corinth, even though the original plan is they would return to him in Athens. And yet, Paul's willing to remain in Athens alone. Somehow that's significant in ways that we don't know because we're not there. But he's willing to be left alone to take that burden for the sake of these others. To give this assistant that he's brought along to be his companion in ministry. He's willing to give sending Timothy to others who need him more. He's willing to pay a price, even personal, individual, even emotional. 
There's a price to invest in others. It might be our time. Whether it's coming near a friend, whether it's, it's investing in the life of somebody else, helping them to grow, whether it's getting together once a week with others in a community group in your home, whether it's joining into one of those groups that's here on Sunday mornings because you want to grow with others and you want to help others grow, whether it's being involved in the children's ministry on Sunday morning for the sake of others. There's always going to be a price that you're going to pay. You're going to pay a price in your time. You're going to pay a price as you get close to others, saved or unsaved. You're going to pay a price in emotional energy. Their burdens are going to become your burdens. Their cares are going to rub off on you, and you're going to hurt because they hurt if you care about them. It'd be easier to just withdraw. It'd be easier to just watch TV because that's at a safe distance. You're going to spend the time, time in prayer for others. You're going to expend yourself in vulnerability. You're going to have to open yourself up to them that they will open themselves up to you. There's, there's going to be money spent in friendship gestures, buying coffee, buying lunch, to spend time together. Let me rehearse. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they see a need, so they make a plan, they pay a price. You might see a need. I mentioned young men maybe needing some direction. You could do something with that. Maybe it's, you see young moms with kids. You're an older mom. Maybe you've been through that. You've been down that trail. You, you could do a Titus 2-4 thing here. You could be one of those older women that teaches younger women how to, in practical ways, in the midst of this mess, how to love their husbands, to love, your, to, to, to love their, their children in, in ways that the current culture doesn't really know how to help. There's a lot of confusion Maybe you'd form a group with them. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's on Sunday morning because here, there's nursery. There's pre-K. There's child care. They can get away from the little ones and they can focus together as women of faith. Maybe it's a coworker who doesn't have faith and you're going to make friends. You're going to learn about them. You're going to invest your time, your energy, your generosity even in coming near somebody else because you see a need. So you'll make a plan, what could I do? And you're willing to pay the price. It might be a neighbor. You're going to help them. You see them working in the yard. So you can wander on over on Saturday morning and instead of the honeydew list that was lined up for you, you're going to help in their project. Let him do that or let her do that. That's worth it. That matters. Maybe, maybe it's you're going to invite him over Say, hey, I got a new grill here, and I, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to try it out with you. Come on over. We're going to put some meat on. Well, you have to pay the price. You've got to buy the new grill, right? Okay. Seems biblical. You know, our county, our county council has told us there's a need. Clark County officially has said there's a need here that we want those who believe in God, those who believe in prayer and the one that we pray to, we want them to engage. They put out a proclamation. It actually concerns this particular weekend. This weekend, there's a proclamation. I had a few copies of it out in the foyer there on that sign-up table. I don't know if there's any left, but the conclusion of it is this. Let me read from that proclamation. This Clark County Council encourages county residents who believe in prayer 
to offer prayer and thanks for the abundant blessings of the past and to seek blessings and healing in the future. You know what's happened here? The Clark County Council has filled out one of our prayer cards, and they've said, would you pray for us? Would you pray for your neighbors? Would you pray for this county and the needs that are there? And sometimes they don't know exactly even what to ask for. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes, right? And we can see this. I read this, and I I read abundant blessings of the past and seek blessings and healing in the future. And I know the kinds of healings that are needed, especially the spiritual kind that will work their way out then in other relational healing and other family structure healing that is needed. Therefore, we, the Clark County Council, this weekend, as a, as a weekend of reflection and prayer in Clark County, Washington, and we urge residents to engage in activities that bring hope, promote benevolence, show love, demonstrate empathy, and strengthen the bonds of our community. Your county council has asked you, would you pray and engage in ways that will bring hope, show love, and care with people around you? Wow. Because that's just what God has told us to do. Do you see a need around you? Make a plan. Be willing to pay the price. Would you join me this morning? Let's pray for Clark County. Let's pray for our community around us. And let's pray for what God would have us do in the midst of these needs in our community. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, we do thank you for what you have done here in the past. Lord, that even includes all the way back in 1863. You led others here who would lead others to Christ in founding this church. Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have enjoyed through the years. But Lord, this community around us needs you, I can't say more than ever, although the, the evidence of it is visible more than ever. Lord, there are people all around us who are separated from God and without hope, without Christ in the world. Lord, would you help us to know ways that we can bring healing, that we can share hope, show love and care, and extend the blessing of your gospel in engaging with people around us. Father, would you use us as a church? Would you open our eyes to see the need? Each one now, Lord, for someone near to us. Would you, Father, clear our minds that we could see a plan, know some next steps? What will we do with what we see? And Father, would you, would you speak to our hearts? Cause us, Lord, to be willing to pay a price, whatever it takes of us and from us, to be used by you in the lives of those around us. And Father, so we commit this offering to you now, both in terms of the offering that is given, 
as we return from what you've provided back to you for your purposes. Father, use it in this community. Use it around the world that other people would know of peace and hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ and thus how to share him with others. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen.